Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And uh, we're just going gonna, gonna to pick up right where we left off last week. In Philippians 1, 12 through 18, I'm in the ESV. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So that's our passage. And y'all, there really is one main point of this entire passage. There, there's no subpoint count here. There, there's one main point, and it, it's this, that Paul has an abounding, an abounding desire. Like one thing guides his entire life. And he states it in verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Like, and you can simplify that even more. Only that in every way Christ is proclaimed. Like that is his abounding desire. So I do want to, I, I, here's where I want us to be careful with our expository preaching. Because we can look at this passage and say, oh, this is what it means to suffer well. Right? He's in prison. This is how you suffer well. And guys, here's how you need to suffer well. Keep this and this and this in mind. And we can do that. All right, and I'm going to talk about suffering in a, small, in a small portion here. But it's not about suffering well. That's not what this is all about. This isn't about suffering. This is about perspective. Perspective changes everything. You can suffer in the moment. You can suffer long term. But whenever your perspective is set, you can endure all things as long as Christ is proclaimed. So it's all about perspective. So that's what's going to guide us. So in expository preaching, we want the main point of that passage, the original intent of those words to be what we really intend to understand for our lives today. Okay, so I, I think we need to understand suffering in, in, in just a small form. So you and I live in America, and in America, there is an American Christianity that's kind of crept in. And it's main stage right now, and, and you can call it the prosperity gospel, you can call it whatever gospel you want. The truth is, is that there is an American form of Christianity, and that in that American form of Christianity, then it's not always about Christ, it's about dreams and fulfilling what makes you you and how God will prosper you in that. Part of that includes that, that if you believe in Christ, then you will not suffer, and if you suffer, it's because your faith is weak completely unbiblical. Absolutely unbiblical. In fact, the Bible says that because you believe, you will suffer. The difference in our sufferings, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that it is not in vain. It has purpose, and it is to pull us closer and closer to Him. Those who are lost, those who do not believe in Christ, their suffering is in vain. They suffer and they go through all of this and they're not pushing further and further to Christ, then it is in vain for them. We know that we are being refined. We know that we are being pruned. We know that we are being brought to the Savior's side. But to be brought to the Savior's side means that because He will not allow sin in His presence, He will constantly remove sin from us. And it can be a painful process. 
Biblical Christianity says that because we believe, we will suffer. Paul is not surprised. This isn't about how you suffer well. It's about how he's able to suffer well. It's about his perspective. But it's not just in the prison cell. We can see it all throughout Acts. One thing drives Paul. His overwhelming, abounding desire is that Christ is made much of regardless of everything else. Like, what if that was my life? Like, what would that begin to look like if, if the tenor of my day wasn't about me and how I felt at the end of the day or in that moment, but as long as in this moment Christ has made much of in my life, through my life, so that His glory is known, that begins to change everything. It doesn't mean that you're not going through some crud. It just means that Christ can be magnified as you go through the crud. And if He can be magnified, that begins to change everything else. You and I will suffer because you and I live in a natural world and we have natural bodies and they grow older and they're weak and they're frail. We also will suffer because God will test us. And then we will also suffer because Satan will tempt us. Like all of these are all throughout Scripture. But we don't need to think that just because we get a diagnosis we don't like, that God is angry with us or that our faith is weak. That means that God is sovereign, and in His sovereignty, He has allowed or has decided that this is best in this moment for me, and so He's going to be with me through that. But it also means sometimes, you know what, guys? I'm just getting older, and my body does not respond like it used to. Like, my knees ache. I groan more, I find, whenever I'm getting up and down than I used to. It's an automatic response. I used to wonder, why do they groan like that as they're getting up and down? And as I'm getting off the couch, I'm like, ah. It just gives you that extra umph. Sometimes it's just that we're getting older. These bodies were meant to fail. There is a greater body in heaven. There will be a redeemer. So sometimes it's just that. But we're going to suffer. It's what do we do in our suffering? Okay, so with that, with that aside, here, here's kind of my culmination uh, of how I think through all of that. That I, am, I really am convinced that everything here is preparing me for there. There being eternity. Everything here in this moment is preparing me for there in eternity. And that's where I will see God face to face. And I will know that all of this was not in vain. You will face not just ailments and, and weaknesses in your body. There will be broken relationships and strained relationships. And Christ can be magnified. There will be moments you're put into that you have absolutely no control of, and Christ can be magnified. And Paul's overwhelming, abounding obsession and desire is that in everything, as long as Christ is magnified. We're going to see that all throughout Philippians. It's gonna, it just radiates all throughout. Okay, so... This isn't about suffering. It's about his abounding desire that I pray is my abounding desire. One more time, put your eyes on it. Philippians 1.18 Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, and, and the context of that we'll see is whether they're wrongly motivated or rightly motivated, these, these other pastors. But only that in every way Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Okay, so on your best high mountain Christian moments, 
right? We were supercharged and we would say, God, make much of you in my life. Whatever you want from me, you take me wherever you want me to go. And then the very next day, whenever we hit that valley, then we sit there and with the same breath, we say, God, where are you right now? And y'all, the answer is that God is in the darkness where he was in the light. Do not doubt the presence of the omnipresent God. He is there and he demands and he is, get this, he's worthy of so much affection. So just be mindful that we don't let the circumstances shake our, our confidence in Christ, okay? All right, so now, now what's really going on here? That was just my little thing on suffering that we need to keep in mind, you're going to suffer. I mean, sometimes it's not the, it's not why, Lord, it's, well, of course, I mean, that makes sense, you know? It's just, it's just how life goes. All right, now, with that in mind, what's going on in Scripture? Paul says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So we're, we're right here at the beginning. What, what has really happened to him? He's imprisoned for the sake of Christ. He could say, foul, persecution, everybody look at me. Look at what's going on. This is injustice. He could absolutely and get this, rightfully say those things. And he doesn't. What would this look like, and what does this look like in our Facebook culture? We post a verse that people do not like. We post a stance that people do not like. And we get a little hate emoji, or whatever those things are called on there. Oh man, we're being persecuted now because of our faith. We're not. In America, y'all, we don't really understand persecution like they understood it then, like other brothers and sisters in the world understand it. But I do believe that at least in my kids' generation, they will begin to understand persecution in a way that we never have. So he says that I want you to know, as he writes from prison, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, my persecution, really has done nothing but advance the gospel. He sees this as something that, that this hardship, that because he can faithfully endure it, that this is actually a catalyst so that the gospel can go out. Did y'all ever look at those, it was in the 90s, and I refer to them quite a bit because they just fascinated me. I mean, they are imprinted on my mind, those magic eye pictures. I was horrible at them. I, I couldn't do them, but they were those pictures that they were on the wall, and it was some funky design, and you, you had to, to look at it, and there was supposedly a sailboat in there. I do think it would be fun to go back and, because there was some, I never saw a thing. Like, I'm like, how fun would that be to like create a design like that and never hide a picture? But supposedly there was always a picture that everybody could find. I struggled with it. But, but once you saw it, in all that chaos, once you saw the picture emerge that had been hidden, once you found that pattern, I found that you could not unfind it anymore. You knew exactly how to see it, but in the chaos of that, you saw that image that was kind of projected into that, and you, you kept seeing it. But, but also part of that is once you saw it, then you saw that magnified, and everything else just kind of became a tunnel vision. Um, you didn't really know what all was going on here anymore because you just saw this one thing and it, and it consumed you and you could see it so crystal clear and you could keep seeing it over and over again. So must we see Christ in our afflictions. In all the chaos and everything that's going on, in the broken relationships and the clamor of this world, we need to know that Christ is magnified above all those things. He's in it. He's not beyond it. It's not out of His control. It's all serving 
Him and everything that comes into our lives, whether you like this or not, everything that comes into our lives can be used to advance the gospel for His glory. And that's what Paul is reminding the Philippians as he comforts them. And he says, I yearn for you with all the effect. I mean, just watch the transition. For God's my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It's all the same. It's all the same breath. He's praying for them and he says, don't worry about me. The gospel's going out. Because Paul truly believes that God is sovereign in all things, not just some. He's able to say, what then? We would say, so what? As long as Christ is magnified. We're going to see that all throughout Philippians, that God is either sovereign or He's not. That is the root and the anchor of our hope. If I were to someday get a diagnosis that I do not like, God is either sovereign or He's not. If I and my body face persecution or defamation of character from others because of the faith in Christ, is either sovereign or He's not. In our marriages, He is either sovereign or He's not. In our lives and all that we face. And so it's because of that that Paul has this abounding, he had this, this abundant hope and joy in the beginning, and now he has this abounding desire. Because if God is sovereign, then he's going to do all things. Then, then Christ must be proclaimed. I want to keep going. If, if this is persecution, and, and it is. I mean, let's just put it. Is this persecution? Absolutely. And, and is it to be accepted? Absolutely. You and I just need to be ready for this. Take a look at Luke 21, verses 12 through 19. We're going to look at a couple of passages right there in the gospel that that help us because if it hasn't happened yet, it will happen. Whether on Facebook or in life, if we are genuinely living out our faith, then we will be persecuted for it. You don't have to look for it. We got plenty of people who they want to look for the persecution. They want to throw down the gauntlet. They want to stoke the fire. They want to, they're egging on that fight. I don't think that that's biblical either. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called children of God. We shall be known for the peace that we seek to make. Therefore, we will be called sons of God. You won't have to look for persecution. It'll come. In Luke 21, Jesus is speaking to them. And he says in verse, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, Luke 21, verse 10, not 12, verse 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your your opportunity to bear witness. So he even says that as things escalate and the world is rapidly moving more towards its, its final expiration date, its end time, then Christians will be persecuted. And he says, and here's your great opportunity. You get to tell them about the hope that's within you. That's why Paul is making sure that people know. He sees his imprisonment as what we see in Luke 21. We also, um, 
see this in Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount. We like certain parts of it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's us be peaceful. Blessed are the meek, because we finally get the earth. You know, like we like those. But then there's also Matthew 5, 10 through 11. So in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling you the attitudes or the, the characteristics of what it means to really be a follower of him. And to know that in being in him, there is a fulfillment that's also promised by him. And in 5, 10 through 11, Jesus speaking says, Blessed, so happy. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, Jesus so clearly says, you will be persecuted, and you will be blessed because you're persecuted. So how can Paul not sit there in prison and sit there and go, okay. I mean, he gets it. He even says, in this I rejoice. That's ridiculous to me. Like he's in prison. He could write so many letters and post so many things and say, I'm being persecuted falsely. And instead he says, I rejoice. You know what? Because he's been found to be exemplifying the life that Christ has called him to live. If we live a godly life, Scripture tells us we will be persecuted. You don't have to seek it out. It's coming. Because whenever we live a faithful life, the enemy comes for you. So Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted when they revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil. What happened to Paul? Uh, we see in Philippians is just a picture of, I think, a greater persecution that's coming. There are plenty of sermons. Y'all be careful. There are plenty of sermons and there are plenty of books being written right now about how we are in the end times and how we are so near. I do not disagree with those two things. But you know what? Tomorrow we're near and we've been in the end times, I think, for a lot longer than we care to recognize. There's a lot we don't know, and we, we presume that we do. It's going to just keep escalating. When will the Lord return? When He comes back, He will be here. Until then, be faithful and hold on, but persecution will naturally escalate for those who desire to live a faithful life. Okay, but, but here's, what we, here's what I want you to take comfort in. David Platt, I love this quote from him. In fact, I keep it at the front of my Bible. I put good quotes in the front of my Bible because one day this Bible will not be my own. One day I won't be able to carry this Bible to heaven with me. It'll be left behind. And so I like to put notes in there because my family or my kids or at the yard sale, somebody else is going to pick it up. All right, and David Platt says, the strategies that Satan uses to stop the church will spread the church. Because Satan is not all powerful. He's limited in scope. And so David Platt rightly says that the strategies that Satan uses to stop the church will spread the church. What do we see in Philippians? That they try to take Paul out of the picture. They put him into prison. And you know what he does with the imperial guard? He preaches to them. And so then his hope spreads throughout the whole imperial guard. And people see that he's been in prison. So what are they? They are now emboldened to share the gospel because they want to come either alongside Paul or in spite of Paul, they want to make their ministry greater. But whatever Satan was trying to stop, he just escalated and made it a catalyst. We see that with Christ on the cross. Satan tries to stop God's working, so he seeks to crucify Christ. 
fulfilling the work of God, which then explodes the gospel to the nations throughout all time. Satan cannot stop what Christ has begun. So Paul is embodying this. And that's why he says back in Philippians chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, this is his way of saying, hey guys, don't worry. Like it's good. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Church, what if what's going on in your life right now is really meant to advance the gospel from you through you for His glory? Like in your marriages, in your job, whatever it is that He puts before you, what if that's really just a platform that God has given you to make much of Him? He goes on, he says, kind of what I've already clarified here, that that the reason this has advanced the gospel, he says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. They couldn't shut him up, in other words. They could imprison him, but they couldn't shut him up. But in that affliction, there's that fire. And whenever he's being burned, whenever the metal is being tested, all he exemplifies is Christ over and over. So it spreads throughout the, the whole imperial guard. And Paul, you know, had to love this because you know what he had? He was in captivity. He had a captive audience. He was always covered by a guard. And so he just would proclaim, you know why I'm here? You understand like that there is one Christ and you should know him. And so he has a captive audience. I mean, it's awesome. You'd be a great Baptist preacher. Like They're stuck with him right there for as long as they have to. You and I, though, struggle. We get short-sighted with our circumstances. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I can already tell. Some of you just went, because you know, we get short-sighted with our circumstances. We see everything that's going on right here in our little kingdom, and that's whenever we begin to wonder why. Whenever we quit looking at our kingdom and we fix our eyes on His throne and we understand that His throne is at the center of His kingdom, which includes all of the cosmos, and this is all His, and He's doing a great redemptive work, and it's much bigger and more magnificent than we could ever imagine, then our little kingdom really comes into perspective and we're obsessed and we're driven and we have that overwhelming desire to make much of that throne because it's so much greater. That throne is better than this throne and this kingdom. Then we begin to change and our perspective begins to widen and everything else becomes lighter. It's no longer, Lord, how do I survive in this kingdom, but how do I live for yours? Does that make sense? Okay. That's what happens whenever you're persecuted and you're thrown into captivity for the gospel and you realize that your kingdom is a really small kingdom and his is large and it encompasses the imperial guard. So you just begin to proclaim. I think Paul also had a grander scope than you and I do. And we're going to know this as soon as I show it to you. You're going to be like, oh yeah. But I think that he would remember he, he studied and he knew the word. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew Genesis 45. He knew the story of Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery. He knew that he, he was familiar with this passage. I'm just going to read it to you, but it's in Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, y'all are familiar with this story, right? I have a pastor that I love very dearly, but here's how he would handle this. And y'all know the, the story of Joseph in Genesis 45. And sometimes Chas and I are sitting there and we lean over like, do you know what passage he's going? We don't. We didn't know if we knew it or not. So I don't want to presume. Um, but Joseph uh, was, was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he's sold into slavery and he, he's in the Pharaoh's household. And he grows up and he gets this 
esteemed honor. And then his brothers who sold him into slavery, there's a famine in the land. So they come back. They're looking for food so that they don't die. And whenever they get there, there's this moment whenever it's finally revealed that the brother that they sold into slavery has been brought up sovereignly by God. We know this through Scripture. Been, been saved and brought up by God to be established in the Pharaoh's house. And he is now over the food rations and providing for his family. So his brothers come, he reveals who he is and they have this moment and he's like, it's okay. It's fine. Like I'm going to. And so here's what happens. Genesis 45. So Joseph said to his brothers who sold him into slavery, come near to me, please. And so they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph. So he reveals it, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. In other words, God was totally in that that moment. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then Genesis 50, 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I want that Joseph perspective, and I don't have it. But Genesis 50, 20, it's, it, it does kind of parallel here. I think that Paul knows these things, at least in his heart, even if he can't recall it fully. But he would know all of God's sovereign actions throughout all of history. And so Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And Joseph has had time to reflect and see backwards how God has sovereignly sustained him and brought him to, brought him to this point. He says, you sold me into slavery, but God brought me here. And you know why? So that many should be kept alive as they are today. Paul sees himself in that exact same situation. He was in prison for the gospel. You know what? God put him here for this purpose so that he could be made much of. So just as Joseph saw the overall working of God, so does Paul. The Westminster Catechism, the first question, what is the chief end of man? Like what really is the chief end of your life? In the end, when you pass away, what cross life is the chief purpose or end of you? Like what were you created for? And the Westminster Catechism says to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you and I were created. That's why we were knit together in our mother's womb. That's why we breathe today, and that's why we will be with Him for all of eternity to glorify, glorify God and end, enjoy Him forever. Sorry. So what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That means that not, that has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has everything to do with Christ. He's either all-consuming or He's not. He cannot be partially consuming or something else is consuming you as well. So the all-consuming Christ. So prison bars did not destroy Paul's ministry, nor should they for us, nor should cancer or famine, nor should COVID or any other pandemic that may come up, nor should social unrest or war. These are the very things that, that may be so, so that we can proclaim Christ to so many more people. This is just where we are, y'all. And he's either sovereign or he's not, and he's either worthy to be made much of or he's not. Verse 14. Now, I love this. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak without fear. Here's what it literally says. I don't do this a whole lot. I don't usually go back to here's the best, most literal rendition of this um, because sometimes it's not worth it. But this one is. Here's how it literally read then. 
to a greater degree, they are daring to speak the word of God without fear. That's what it really meant whenever the flip... He says, because I'm imprisoned, and because everybody knows that I'm imprisoned because of Christ, most of the brothers, to a greater degree, are daring to speak the word of God without fear. In other words, because others see me suffer in this way, they are much more prone to share Christ more openly. David Platt, in much the same vein as what he said before, he says, our suffering may be inevitable, but our mission is unstoppable. I mean, I just got some of those that I have to remember, that, that our suffering is inevitable, it's, good. it's part of what we do, but the mission that we're on is unstoppable, because God is unstoppable, right? So that's as powerful as Satan can be, he cannot stop the work of God. And So, I know you get that. I want to get to 15, 16, 17, and, and, and start to move towards this, because this is where, where he really builds. You understand the imprisonment, you understand suffering, you understand that, that he has this overwhelming desire. He says, now there's two camps. They are daring to speak to a greater degree more boldly of Christ. And he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So there's two groups now that are willing to preach uh, with, with greater boldness. 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here. Look at that word, put here. Don't miss it. Just yeah, It's a great one to... to so I don't want to, not even a side sermon. You just got to underline the word put here. The latter, the ones who are doing it out of goodwill, they're doing it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So he knows why he's there. He has been put there by God for a reason. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So there's two groups, those who do it out of love and those who do it out of jealousy. Verse 16, there are those who are genuinely motivated Christians who see his suffering and genuinely emboldened to proclaim Christ more. You know, we, we live in such a world that it is easy for you and I to believe that in our lives everything should, should rightly circulate around us. I mean, it, it should. I mean, this is the world I live in. This is my family. This is my job. You're my friends. Yeah, you know, like everything circulates around us. And, and Paul is much, much bigger than that. And, and so he's kind of saying, like, here I am, and, and then there are those who they really do love me, and this is why they're doing it, and then there are those they don't love me, and here's why they're doing it. So he's going to clarify. But why are, they, why are they more excited? Because they love Paul. They see that he's suffering. They see that faith. They're honoring that faith, and they see that Christ is really much more than his suffering, and they're driven, and so they begin to preach it. Then you get verse 17. I mean, I'm sorry, verse Verse 15. But there are those who preach out of envy and rivalry. That's a head-scratcher. Who are these jerks? I mean, who are the ones that because Paul is in prison, they are jealous of him, and so they preach much more. They don't do it out of love. You can't say jerks in a sermon, can you? I can tell by reading your face. You're like, mm, I did, okay? Just put it in my little, hey, things you say in a sermon one day. Y'all, let's listen to it. Why did they preach Christ more? He says, out of jealousy for him. We don't know who they are. But by God's grace, we're not worse than we already are. And by God's grace, we're becoming better than, than we ever were. We could easily be wrongly motivated even in ministry to do something. They are driven by jealousy to proclaim Christ. There's Paul's ministry. And now that Paul's out of the picture, now's our chance. 
It's kind of how this reads. So they want to make much of their ministry because Paul has become in prison, not because they love Paul, but since he's been in prison, here's our chance. There's this envy and rivalry. So the first out of, uh, out of love, the second out of envy and jealousy. Y'all, you need to get this out. These were not false teachers. This is why it gets more complicated. They're not the false teachers. Because he says so clearly that some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. They're still preaching the gospel. They're not the false teachers. These are not the ones who are leading people astray. That's why this one's hard for us. Because he says they're jealous of me, and, and they're, that's why that they are proclaiming Christ even more so. And you know what his response is? So what? So what if they're doing because they love me? And so what if they're doing it in spite of me so that they can have a greater ministry and take this opportunity? Paul doesn't care. You know who cares? Well, I won't point the finger at you. I care. I care why other people do ministry in the way that they do. In my flesh, I care and you care. We care about the motives of people whenever Paul says, I don't care. You know what's happening? They're proclaiming Christ. You know why that matters? Because whenever Christ is proclaimed, Christ sorts everything else out. We don't have to fix the problems whenever Christ is involved. So he says, I know that people are proclaiming Christ more. Rightly motivated, wrongly motivated, so what? So that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He doesn't care why they did it as long as Christ was proclaimed. Do you? Like, as long as Christ is proclaimed, like, do you care why people are doing ministry the way that they do? Like, we get tied up in the motive. We don't get tied up in the end. We get tied up in the motive. We let this become what Satan distracts us with, whether that in the end, Christ is proclaimed. I mean, what would it look like if we embrace this mentality as modern Christians? If, if Christ were more central, and I'm just going to kind of read through this so I don't mess this up. If Christ were more central, there would be less divisions within the church. There just would be. Within congregations, absolutely, but I'm talking congregation to congregation. There would be less division. Y'all, we should rejoice in other churches' growth because Christ is being proclaimed from that platform. Rightly motivated, wrongly motivated, as long as Christ is proclaimed. Let me write a book on that one. That one won't sell. But if God builds one gospel-preaching church larger than the next, then Christ is proclaimed. Y'all, there are better churches. But I, I, let me back up. I, I don't want to miss this. The bitterness of competition so corrupts our joy because it turns our eyes back to us as though we have anything that we could really lose. But competition creates a bitterness within churches, within ministries, within a church. Like, I've seen this in pastoral ministries. I've seen this in worship ministries. I've seen it from church to church. Like, you got your church, and you got to guard your church because you don't need this other tribe coming into your church. We need to keep our tribe separate. I don't know where that is. So, so humbly, let's just realize that there are better churches in Cross Life Fort Smith. Praise the Lord as long as Christ is proclaimed. There are better preachers than I will ever be. Praise the Lord as long as Christ is proclaimed. There are those who will handle stress and suffering so much better than me. Praise the Lord 
as long as Christ is proclaimed. There are those in this church and in other churches who are healthier and wealthier and will possess so much more wisdom than I ever will. Praise the Lord as long as Christ is proclaimed. And I may very well be persecuted in prison one day because of the faith that we proclaim. Praise the Lord as long as Christ is proclaimed. And I may very well contract a disease that robs me of my life here in this world. Praise the Lord as long as Christ is proclaimed. And I may endure conflicts and hardships with others here in this life. Praise the Lord as long as Christ is proclaimed. If Christ is proclaimed, if we became the banner and the overwhelming, abounding desire of our lives as it was for Paul, then none of these other factors matter. It all becomes well with us. We love that song, It is well with my soul. But is it really? It's well with my soul in the peace, but in the hardship, is it really well? As long as Christ is proclaimed, is it well? Paul had absolutely nothing to lose. Get this, he had nothing to lose. He had Christ, and for him, that was enough. Is that enough for you? And is it enough for me? Because that begins to shape the perspective that we need so that we can do all things. You know, I'm, I'm, don't worry, we're going to preach this eventually. Um, listen to verse 11 at the end of Philippians. Not that I am speaking, I know, I'm sorry. Don't just listen, go to it. Philippians 4, 11. Here's how he's going to conclude it all. It echoes what he's saying at the beginning. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now watch this. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 isn't your life verse simply because you can do all things through Christ? What does it mean? It means that you can be brought low, you can be made to excel. You can be in hunger, you can be in need. Like he's talking about all of life's situation, all that you and I will endure, Christ will strengthen you through it. It's not will he, it's just what we trust him. Paul had nothing to lose, and y'all, you have nothing to lose. So they take your life, and you are with him. So they take your name, and he knows the truth, and he's with you eternally. They put you in prison and give you a captive audience that cannot escape you so that you can show people the joy that you have in Christ. They falsely tell you or make claims about you and what you're preaching to which you get to say, that's not what I meant at all because here's actually the truth of the gospel. I mean, what Satan seeks to stop the ministry and the gospel of Christ, God uses it so that we have a platform to make much of him. And Paul says, that's okay with me. Imprison me, kill me. Others, as long as they proclaim Christ, that's all that matters. I don't think Paul was consumed with the kingdom of his ministry. I think he was just enthralled by the throne that he was going to, y'all. Like, it's all consuming. I want to live like that. Martin Henry, uh, no, sorry, not Martin Henry. Matthew Henry put it this way, and then we're done. Let us leave it to Christ which way he will make us serviceable to his glory whether by labor or by suffering, by diligence or by patience, by living to his honor and working for him or dying to his honor and suffering for him. Listen to that first sentence one more time and we're going to pray. 
Let us leave it to Christ which way He will make us serviceable to His glory. I like that. How will God use you for His glory? It's up to Him. Lord, You determine what You will do with us. And Lord, help us to know that it is well. So we can lose all things in this world, and so what? As long as Christ is proclaimed. And you may also bless us with all things in this world. And you know what, Lord? So what? As long as Christ is proclaimed. May that become the banner of our lives. Lord God, we love you. Thank you that you have made us your own. Amen.